0: This morning, uh, on this resurrection morning, we're talking about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This is lesson number five. We'll probably end our, our series here on this lesson. And so it's number five. Thank God for Jesus. It's all about him. And quickly, the number one thing that God laid upon my heart is to share with you the objective of this service today, this ministry today, the word that you hear today is to see to it that every single one of us who leaves this realm of life through death will make heaven our home. That is more important than anything else in the world. Because why? Well, because we are living in the realm or the land of the dying. Did you notice that? How many of you notice that people around you are dying? People that you graduated high school with are are gone. Many are gone. We're living in the land of the dying. But when we die, we go to the land of the living. And in the land of the living, there's only two places to go to. One's a place of eternal comfort. And the other is a place of eternal discomfort or suffering. Now, those are the two choices. No one can escape them. We want to be certain that we are prepared to leave this realm of life should today be our last day, knowing that we will enter into an eternity of glory with a living God and live and reign with him forever. And so that is what's most important. Now, as far as a quick review of some of the things we've already said, uh, Jesus is what the Bible's all about. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and everything in between. From Genesis to Revelation, this is all about Jesus. In every book of the Bible, it's all about Jesus. There are other characters, we understand that, but the primary one, the main one, is who? Jesus, from beginning to end. And so we've made that very clear. So, he is the Alpha, and he is the Omega. Now, we also emphasize that there are four phases... To the message of the Bible. So we can kind of put it concisely in four statements. Number one. It's all about the fact that God had a desire or a dream for a family. That's pretty simple, isn't it? He's a father. He wants a family. Phase number two is redemption from sin. Why? Because Adam and Eve sinned. And they delayed the father's dream from coming true. The family. So God had to deal with the sin problem, and that involved redemption. Number three, the dream come true. That God was able to legally give birth to sons and daughters on planet Earth. Number four, the father's dream house, home. Everybody knows there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There's sure to be. Renovated by fire, the Bible says. And it's going to be changed. And so the family home is going to be a new heavens and a new earth where Jesus has prepared a place for every single one of us because we're His. So the Father provides a a family home. Isn't that good to know? Amen. We're not orphans and we're not abandoned. Okay. With that revelation comes answers to some serious questions that people have. Some people do all that they can to find out these answers. And they're so simple, they're going to be ashamed when they found out the truth someday. What's the reason for the universe? Answer simple. To provide a livable environment on earth. Those that want to go to the moon and live there, something's wrong. Everything out there in the universe affects this earth to provide a livable environment. Number two, what's the reason for the earth? Simple answer. Every resource on this earth is to provide for the need of man. Aren't you glad there's things in this earth that provides pizza? Thank God almighty. When I saw that Jesus convinced his followers that he was alive in bodily form, that he was raised from the dead, he said, look, touch here, touch here, touch there, touch there, looky here, looky there. He goes, all right, all right, give me some fish. And then he ate. I said, thank you, Jesus, this new body will eat. Aren't you glad? Right? It's to provide for the need of man on the earth. And what's the reason for man? Go back to the beginning to provide a family for God. That's why we're alive on the earth. So that we can procreate and bring into this realm children that will live forever and prayerfully with Him forever. Now as we continue our study, it's important to know this. We had nothing to do with three of these four phases. Nothing at all. Any of you here ever... Know how to create things in the beginning like creation? We had nothing to do with it, did we? This is all God, isn't it? And why is have this creation so we can have a family, right? Okay. Number two. When man rebelled against God, did we have anything to do with redemption? Could we redeem ourselves? Absolutely not. God had to do it, otherwise we're lost forever. That's number two. We're gonna skip over number three. Go to number four. The new heavens and the new earth. Does anyone know how to renovate this earth by fire? And provide a new heavens and a new earth? Absolutely not. Right? But the third phase is up to us. He made it possible for us. We're living in the third phase right now. To become the sons and daughters of the most high God. But that he forces on no one. We must make a decision to be a part of his royal family. By accepting his plan of salvation. So that is in our control. That's up to us. Now look at Mark's gospel, if you would, with me. Chapter 1, and verses 14 and 15. This is Jesus speaking. John the Baptist was preaching repentance and that sort of thing. He was taken into prison. Jesus picked up his ministry, and here's what he says. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Notice, repent and do what? Believe the gospel. So what's necessary for us to become children of the most high God? We have to repent and believe the gospel. Well, what's the gospel? I'm so glad you asked me this morning. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What's the gospel? Well, in the first nine verses, we have a revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's powerful. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, and he says, By the unction of the Spirit, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. In other words, I'm giving you what was taught me. And who taught Paul the gospel? Jesus did, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, look at how detailed, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures as it was prophesied, and that he was seen of Cephas or Peter, then of the twelve, after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. Many are still alive, but some have died of the 500 that he appeared to. After that, he was seen of James, his half-brother. Then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet or really worthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. So, this Apostle Paul says, I'm really not worthy to be named an Apostle because of what I did. The destruction that I did to what? The Church of God. Well, this was written by a strict Jewish leader. An educated individual who sat at the feet of Rabbi Gamaliel, who was taught the Old Testament Scriptures who was a scholar and in his own words was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and regarding the law, blameless. He wrote that. But this same man that wrote that wasn't always called Paul the Apostle. You see, he is first revealed in Scripture as Saul of Tarsus. Someone who hated Christianity. Someone who hated Jesus Christ. Someone who was a religious zealot, so protective of his own Jewish faith that he set out to destroy Christianity nipping in the bud and uproot it from its root system. And he was off and running. Look at Acts chapter 7. And look at what it says. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears as Stephen was preaching the gospel. And they ran upon him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. This is where he's first introduced in scripture. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not the sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So Saul had his clothes, Stephen's clothes laid at him because he was the one that orchestrated his death. Because he was going from place to place and city to city. And if he found any person that would name Christ. You see, it's not like it is in our country. If you defect from Judaism and you say you're baptized in Christ, you die. Or you're going to be placed in a prison or you're going to be persecuted until you recant and you see to it that you change your mind and you go back into Judaism. This man was a religious zealot. He was a very intelligent man, highly regarded, highly esteemed. All of a sudden, he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you make such a radical change in your view? How do you go from that to this? Acts chapter 9 and verse 1 tells us how. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, that is a Christian, whether they be men or women, that he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks, Saul. And he trembling was astonished and said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. You want to know what changed him so radically from defending Judaism to defecting and becoming a born-again Christian? It's called the resurrection. It's called he saw Jesus. He saw an empty tomb. He saw the one that was in the tomb, but now he's no longer in the tomb, and he's right there, falling down because of the glory. That is what did it. Look in Matthew's Gospel. In chapter 28. Here we have the story. In the end of the Sabbath, as began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher, or the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it his countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow and for fear of him the keepers did shake and became as dead men that's the Roman soldiers and the angel answered and said unto the women fear not ye for I know that you seek Jesus which was crucified he is not here for he is risen as he said come see the place where the Lord lay And guess what they saw? An empty tomb. Did you know how many people pay a lot of money to go to Jerusalem, to that tomb site, to see nothing? Where are we going? We're going to Israel. Where are we going? Jerusalem. Where are we going? We're going to see the empty tomb. You're going to see what? Empty. Nothing. How much is it going to cost us? About $3,000 each. For what reason? To see nothing. (laughs) You know, we live in a day right now when many people say, there are many ways to God. They want us to believe in our culture, that it doesn't matter what your religion is, He's the same God, and He accepts everybody's form of worship. But what they fail to recognize is one significant event that Christianity boasts that no other world religion can possibly claim, and that is the founder of our religion has an empty tomb. Jesus staked his entire ministry on a resurrection from the dead and an empty tomb. And if he would be raised from the dead and his tomb would be empty, if he can do that, then anything and everything he ever spoke from his mouth must be true. So he would support all his claims by a resurrection from the dead and an empty tomb. Now think about it. What other religion can boast that? No resurrection has, has ever been claimed for Abraham, founder of. Judaism. No resurrection has ever been claimed for Buddha, founder of Buddhism. No resurrection has ever been claimed for Confucius, founder of Confucianism. And no resurrection has ever been claimed for Muhammad, founder of Islam. But. Our founder said, You want to believe that I'm telling you the truth? Kill me. And three days I will rise again. Grave will not hold me. Death will not hold me. So if you don't believe my words, believe the empty tomb. Powerful, wouldn't you say? Now other religions can boast some things... We have a holy book. They have a holy book. We have a large congregations and followings. They have large followings and congregations. We have beautiful edifices, buildings that we worship in and so do they. But that's where it stops. We have an empty tomb. They have bones. Where they go. And they bow, but the bones are still there. Who are we going to believe then? The tomb that's empty or the tomb that's full? This same Apostle Paul, as we pick it up in 1 Corinthians 15, who now became a zealot for Jesus and not Judaism, states these words. Look at chapter 15 beginning at verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, and how does Paul know this? He had his experience. How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? You know, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, but the Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife or a resurrection, not even of the spirit, let alone of the body. And that's why they were Sadducees. We all know that's why they were Sadducees. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? Well, if Christ be not risen, then as our, notice these things we're going to point out. Our preaching is vain. Your faith is also vain. Yea, we are found false witnesses of God, because you have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not, for if the dead rise not, then is Christ not Christ not raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and you are yet in your sins, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Look at these six things he points out here. If Christ is not risen from the dead, number one, all preaching is in vain. It is useless. It is futile. It is fruitless. It has no meaning whatsoever. What are we preaching? Why are we preaching? Why are we even here if there's no resurrection from the dead? Number two, our faith is in vain. Our belief system is in vain. We're believing in something that doesn't exist. Number three, we are false witnesses. False witnesses means we're telling a lie. We're saying that someone is alive who is dead. We're saying that he conquered death, hell, and the grave when he didn't. So you see, We're false witnesses. Number four, then we're still bound to our sin. We're still in sin just like everybody else in this world. And number two, remember what it was? Redemption from sin. We've not been redeemed from sin. Sin is still still running its full course in our lives. And there's no escape from sin. And then number five, our loved ones, our precious loved ones have perished. They don't even exist anymore. Either they're completely gone, back to the dust of the earth, and that's all there is to it. Or, if there is an afterlife, then they're perishing who knows where. And then finally, number six, the last thing, we're to be pitied above all men. We're men most miserable. You want to know why we're so miserable? Because we didn't have any donuts this morning. We're going through all this, and we stopped the donuts just so that we could do this. Think about it. He's actually saying that we're to be pitied above all people. Look at verse 19 and then verse 32. Let's put these two together. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable to be pitied, one tries says. And then look at verse 32. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage it me if the dead rise not? Let us do what? Eat, drink, for tomorrow, we no longer exist. So what is he saying? Get your fill of this life. Sow your wild oats. Forget about religion. Forget about faith. Forget, forget about the afterlife. Just go ahead and party. Party hardy. Just party your heart out. Because you see, there's nothing to be responsible to or for. When you leave this realm, you're just going to go back to the dust of the earth. Well, guess what? Look at the next verse. The Apostle Paul says... And verse 20 through 23. But now is Christ risen from the dead. And become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Look at he puts the two together. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits after that afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. So now he says, In Adam we all die. And God had to do something to put that to death. In Christ, men are all made alive. We had nothing to do with Adam. We had nothing to do with Christ. This was all the plan of God. It was all the purpose of God. It was God who did all, who orchestrated redemption. It was God who sent His Son to this world to die for us. He took our responsibilities upon Himself, our liabilities upon Himself. He sought that He provided a means or a way by which we could become the sons and daughters of the Most High God. Now is Christ risen from the dead. How can He say that with such assurance, he saw him on that Damascus road, he humbled himself he fell to the ground, when Jesus saved his spirit, filled him with the Holy Ghost, healed his blind eyes he set out to preach and proclaim with the fervor that he had when he was a Jew Christianity and he stood for it, praise God, until he finally gave up his life because Jesus is alive now I want you to look at these two verses, and really, you've got to get the CD from Friday night. If you, if you weren't here, you've got to get Friday night's CD. Acts 2, because this is the resurrection. And I'm going to be bold this morning, if that's okay with you. Because you know why? I believe that we have minimized the sufferings of Jesus. We don't want to offend anybody, we don't want to hurt anybody. Truth is truth. I'm not even going to give you anything like an interpretation of what I'm about to read to you. I'm just going to read it. So it could speak for itself. Acts 2.24 Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the comforts. Wait a minute. Paul the Apostle wrote those words in 1 Corinthians, Right? Paul, the one who saw Jesus of Damascus wrote, right? Paul who says, I can't deny him any longer, can I? No. He says, he died and he was raised from the dead. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed... Everybody say, pains. Other translations say, pains, pangs, birth throes, agony, and sorrow. Another translation says, he was raised from the sorrow of hell. Notice because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Now look at verse 31. It was impossible for death to hold him. It was impossible for him to submit to that pain for the rest of eternity. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left where? A little more authority. His soul was not left where? Who wrote? The book of Acts? Luke. And you, I'll give you a C for just trying. Who wrote the gospel of Luke? Luke. You get an A. When Luke said the rich man died and in hell or Hades, he was in torments, right? But he said when the beggar died, he was in Abraham's bosom. Right? Okay. Does Luke know the distinct difference between Abraham's bosom and Hades? So he writes this and says, His soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh see corruption. So the resurrection of Jesus had to do with his being resurrected from hell and his flesh not seeing corruption, which means it wasn't decayed. So this resurrection involved his two parts, the inward man and the outward man. Because as he himself said, when a woman's in travail, she'll give birth and there'll be joy. He was in travail, Isaiah 53. The Lord Jehovah saw the travail of his soul, the birth throes he was suffering, and when he said it is enough, he raised him from the dead. And he said, today I am fathering you. We talked about this. Get the CD, like I said, from Friday night. His sufferings. So here we have the resurrection of Jesus which was a display of the greatest working of God's almighty power ever displayed anywhere, ever. And it was more than just a body coming back to life. Because you see, it wasn't just Jesus' body that came back to life. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm ready for the play-by-play. Here's the play-by-play. I come from an athletic background. I appreciate athletics. Athletics. Athletics have taught me a lot. I also understand warfare. And so when it comes to in the natural world that we live in, we understand strategy, right? We understand teamwork, do we not? And if we want to succeed, we have to put forth the best effort when it comes to all things. You can have the best players on a team, but if they don't play together, they're going to lose. You can have not the best players on a team, but if they play together, they're going to win. So, I've learned this, the greatest athletic event, the greatest warfare ever to take place, the greatest strategy any coach has ever demonstrated is found not in the NFL or the NBA or the NCAA or anything that we deal with on earth. The play-by-play is this. God wanted a family. Man destroyed the dream by his sin. In order for man to become a child of God, because he's the offspring of the devil now, there must be redemption. Someone must legally pay the price for that separation that took place in the very beginning. No one with human blood from Adam could possibly do it. That is impossible. So here it is, the strategy of heaven. God will send the second person of deity, his son, and there will be an incarnation. He will leave his glory behind. He will robe himself in flesh. He will legally, in a hypostatic union, become the God-man. 100% God and 100% man. He will then be born of the Virgin Mary and walk upon the earth and let people of the earth know what the first Adam had before he fell. He will walk with authority over even the nature itself. He will walk in such a way, he will turn water into wine, he will heal the nobleman's son. He will walk on water. He will multiply fish and loaves. He will stop a storming sea. He will heal the sick. He will cleanse the lepers. He will raise the dead. He will make the maimed to become whole. He will live like no man ever lived on planet earth. He will do more in one week than 4,000 years of Hebrew history in his ministry. He will call attention to himself in such a way because of what he's done that people will not be able to get near him even if they gather into a little house. But then, after he has done his work on this earth, he says, my hour, the birthing hour has come. The time of travail has come. In the last week, he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And what was he going there for? Not to heal the sick, not to cleanse the leper, not to raise the dead. He was going there to die. He was going there to lay down his life. He was going to go to the cross. And I'm telling you, he had his blinders on. He wasn't looking to the left. He wasn't looking to the right. He was going to walk down the Via Rosa. The path to Calgary, Calvary. And he was going to go headstrong like a flint. And see to it that he went to the cross. And even though he was beaten. Even though he was whipped. Even though he was so marred more than any man. He didn't appear like a man. And when he was whipped with the cat of nine tails. It says the, whips, the stripes upon his back. When it got to the place it was a stripe on his back. Because you couldn't see one ounce of flesh on his back. Because all you saw was bones from his back. But that wasn't the fullness of his suffering. He took the crown of thorns. He took the stripes on his back. He took the nails in his hands. He took the nails in his feet. He would go to a cross and say, Greater love, is no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And on that cross, he would then become sin for you. He would become sin for me. It pleased Jehovah to bruise him. He made him to be sin. When he became sin and gave up the ghost, his spirit descended into the bowels of the earth called Hades. His flesh went to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. It was not going to be there till it decayed and his soul was not going to be left or forsaken in hell. Because you see, on the third day, when God the Father looked over the banisters of heaven and he looked around the throne and he said, you know, redemption has got to come at a price, someone's got to pay the price and he kept looking and looking and looking and on resurrection morning he said it is enough it is finished and by the glory of the Father, can you imagine this, this masterpiece at work by the glory of the Father the Holy Ghost, the glory of God descended to the bowels of the earth, the Holy Ghost, God his, his soul that was in travail and said this is the day I become your father again. Read it. In Acts 13, it says, This day I have become your father, or I have fathered you. And he birthed him. We're talking about a birth out of the realms of darkness. And then the glory, you know what it did? It created a rumbling and an earthquake as he began to ascend from that place. And where was he going? To the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Why? His body was still there. It was emaciated, yes. It was martyred in man, yes. But when the Spirit of Almighty God that raised him up, out of that place entered into his body it became glorified hallelujah he came the, the stone wasn't just moved away that 4,000 pound rock was thrown away just like it was a pebble and an angel stood there sitting on the thr- on the rocks just like this here who, who you come to see he's not here he's alive he's risen as he said he would can you say amen just as he said he would. But you see, he's not done yet. Oh, I know he said he's finished on the cross. But when he said he was finished on the cross, he was finishing the Abrahamic covenant, the old covenant, the Mosaic law, the, the, all the types, all the shadows, and all, all those things were coming to an end. And even the, even the Ark of the Covenant is no longer necessary. Get the tape from C, CD from Friday. Okay, he's not done yet. Why is he not done yet? Because the book of Hebrews says... Redemption is not complete until the high priest goes into the high court of heaven. And he takes the blood of the sacrificial lamb and applies it to the mercy seat and all the heavenly of worship. Because you see, where Adam sin-stained all that, he had to cleanse all that. And so, can you imagine, can you picture this? I'm talking about the play-by-play. Here's the play-by-play. Now he's emerged from the grave. Now he says, Mary, touch me not. I'm not ascended to my father, your father, my God, and your God. Now he says... I'm gone, I'm going to offer my blood. He walks into the very throne of Almighty God. There's the cherubim, there's the seraphim. They, they've got flaming swords. They were keeping anyone who does not belong there away from the very throne of God. The Ark of the Covenant, which is the, the heavenly holy of holies. I can just see them questioning Jesus. What gives you the right to be here? Because you see, he's 100% man as well as 100%, 100% God. He pulls out the basin of his blood. He stands before those two angels, those two cherubim and seraphim and says, By the blood of my sacrifice, I come to the throne to redeem mankind and purchase man's redemption. They step aside and he walks in and he takes like the high priest the blood and he begins to sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat all the heavenly utensils of worship and the Bible says it was at that point he obtained eternal redemption for us but he's not done yet it's all done there, but he's got to go back now. He's got to go back to the earth. He's got to appear to Cephas or Peter. He's got to appear to the 500. You has got to appear to Mary. You can touch me now. To his disciples, you can touch me now. Come and see me. He's going to eat with them. And have, he's going to cook fish for them. Isn't he gracious? He's going to cook fish for them and all that. He's going to let everybody know, the one you saw in the grave, here I am. Look at me now. Hallelujah. Look at me now you be to God. And then they have the uh, opportunity to watch him finally ascend to heaven as they looked at him in the clouds as he goes up and takes captivity captive, brings everybody from Abraham's bosom up into the heavenlies. They watch that. They see that occur. And now he says, now go wait and get filled with the Holy Ghost and go crazy. Let the world know. shouted from the mountaintop. Jesus Christ is Lord. And He's alive. That's the play by play. Now you got your shouting clothes on? Do you have your seatbelt ready? Buckle yourself down or get your steel-toed shoes on or whatever. Hold your something, weight you down. Because I want you to read with me Ephesians chapter 2. And what it says. Because I want you to know that when He came out of that grave... When he came up from that death, you came up with him. Oh, you ready for it? Can you contain it within yourself? Look at what it says, Ephesians chapter two, beginning at verse one. And you has he made alive, that word quickened means, who were dead, we were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past you walked to the cor- according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in children of disobedience, among whom we all had our conversation in time past, uh, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, children of wrath, children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is so rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has he quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved, and raised us up, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding greatness of his riches of his kindness toward us. In other words, he's going to put it on display when Jesus was brought up. Every human being in the mind of God was brought up with him out of spiritual death. Guess what? Everybody's been bought and paid for. But not everybody will go to heaven. You know why? We're living in the third phase. That's your decision. That's my decision. Legally, it's been done. All you have to do, all I have to do is receive it it's up to me. Look at John's Gospel chapter 3, and we're going to close here with these last two scriptures. Look at John's Gospel chapter 3. I'm going to start here at the beginning because I want to show you this was a devout holy man he's talking to. There was a man named uh, of the Pharisees. Pharisees, very strict religious you know, group. Named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi? He called him a Rabbi. He was definitely a Rabbi, a teacher, because he went through rabbinical school and all that. We know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles except that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus just doesn't even answer that. He answers and said to the man, Verily, verily, I say to thee, except the man be born again. He didn't say except the man be a Jew, a Baptist, a Catholic, a, a Pentecostal, a Foursquare, and Methodist, and Presbyterian. He didn't say that, did he? Except the man be born again. What? he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time to his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say to thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. you got a physical birth, and there is a spiritual birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not, I said to thee, You must, must, everybody say must. Does Jesus know what he's talking about? You must be born again. You must be born again, Jesus said. Well, when you hear the term born again, what does it mean? A new birth. What phase are we living in? The third phase. This is the time when people can be born again because the Father can give birth to us. Why? Because redemption has been completed. That's why. And here's how it works. Look at Romans chapter 10 and verse 7. Or who shall descend into the deep? The word deep is the abyss. Jesus was in the abyss. That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is near you, even in your mouth and your heart, the word of faith that we preach. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes to righteousness, with the mouth he confesses to salvation. For the scripture says, Whosoever believes on Him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. For whosoever... Are you a whosoever this morning? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, we're living in the third phase. We're living in the time right now. God has done His part. He didn't say... Come to church every Sunday. He didn't say, go do good works and good deeds. Jesus didn't say to Nicodemus, I know all your good works. I know all your good deeds. I know that you studied. I know that you're a Pharisee. I know that you've got good moral standards. And I know you got this. And I know you've got that. He said to Nicodemus, It doesn't matter what you have. Because what you have is never going to be good enough for me. What's going to ha- happen is this. You accept my sacrifice. And you must be born again. You must then call upon the name of the only person that can save us. Because only Jesus died and was raised from the dead for you, and for me. So before we celebrate this supper, I'm going to ask you the final question. God has done His part. Jesus did His part. Have we done ours? I sat in church for 24 years, faithfully. Guess what? I wasn't saved. Someone came along and told me, Hey Bill, you must be born again to make heaven. I said, You're crazy. You're out of your mind. I actually said, How can I go back into my mother's womb? I actually said that not even knowing the scripture said that. And that person just was wise enough to let me go. See, they sowed the seed. Someone else came along and watered the seed and said, hey, you know you have to be born again. I said, why don't you become what I am so you can go to heaven? A little bit sarcastic with the guy. I was at work. I was small, but a little sometimes feisty. He was a lot bigger than I was. He said, okay, smarty pants, go home. And get your dusty Bible off of your coffee table. Open it to John 3.3 that we just read. Verse 7. And tell me tomorrow what it says. Oh, I was just... I told you I come from an athletic background. You know, I like to win. I read that. My eyes popped out of my head. My jaw... Jesus actually said, in my dusty Bible. The beautiful, thick, family, dusty Bible that I never opened. It was so nicely placed on the coffee table, taking up all that room there, looking so beautiful, because you see, there it is, right there. It's like having the playbook. It's like having the game plan, and you never open it up. Don't even know who the players are. When I saw that there in John 3, 3, and John 4 through 7... I fell under a deep conviction. Then came my dad. One watered, one sowed the seed in me, one watered the seed in me. I thought God gave the increase, my dad gave the increase. He caught me one day when I was catchable. And he brought a sinner's prayer to me. He knew I didn't know the Bible, so guess where he started? The book of Revelation. And he said, Bill, I want you to know something. You'll be flying in a plane one day, and the pilot is saved, and he's going to go to heaven when the rapture comes, and the plane is going to crash with you in it. Or you'll be on a train one day, and the conductor of the train is born again. He's going to go off into glory, and the train is going to crash And you are going to be in it. And I just want you to know that what happens to those that are left behind, they're going to have to either get the mark of the beast. Oh yeah, he hit me with the full pressure of the mark of the beast. You know, the six, six, six stamped upon your head. And I'm telling you, if you don't do it, they're going to... And then he left. I thought it was the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. But he left me with a sinner's prayer. I took it, literally, went into my closet, got on my knees, and said, I don't want that. And I asked the Lord to save me. And I'm telling you, He did. He never had to ask me to open up the Bible. He never had to tell me to go to church. Because once I was born again, I passed from death to life. My whole countenance changed. My mindset changed. I'm on the victor's side now. I'm on the winning team now. Oh, hallelujah to the Lamb of God.